and preschool praise, and we thank all of those who are helping with that ministry. And I encourage you to take out of your bulletin the sermon outline for today. Hopefully you will find it useful as it contains the text, but also an outline, fill in the blanks, take some notes so that you can remember what the Lord has taught you, and perhaps pull it out of your Bible later on today or later this week and discuss it with your family and friends and pray through it. Today we begin a new sermon series in the New Testament book of Hebrews. And I've called this series, Pressing On Because of the Supremacy of Christ. In the past, the culture in the United States was favorable towards biblical Christianity. Now, it was debatable as to whether this one time was a Christian nation, but it was definitely built on Christian principles, biblical principles. But then with the growth of secularism, the emphasis on comparative religions and the liberalism of Christianity, the culture changed from being favorable towards Christianity to be tolerant of Christianity. But then out of this came the idea of relativism and no absolutes, the tolerance of all ideas except an intolerance of absolutes. And that's where we are today, I believe, in our culture. Our culture is intolerant of absolutes, intolerant of true biblical Christianity. It's becoming more and more hostile to orthodox Christianity. Well, the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians most who have come out of Judaism, in other words, and, and they are being persecuted by their culture. Their culture is less and less tolerant of them. They are being persecuted by their own people, the Jews, that look at them as abandoning their people's religion. They are being marginalized and persecuted by the government, the Roman government. Some Jewish Christians are becoming dissatisfied with Christianity, and they're tempted to give up. They're tempted to turn back to Judaism. And so the goal of the writer of Hebrews was to challenge believers not to give up, but to press on in their faith. Now, how does he do this? How does he urge them to press on? Well, by showing them the supremacy of Christ. You see, this is always the answer. When we are tempted to give up, when our society begins to persecute or be intolerant toward us, we need to look to Christ. We need to look at Him more intently, more closely, who He is and what He did for us in the gospel. We're to look at the sufficiency and supremacy of the Lord Jesus. That is what the book of Hebrews is all about. Now, before we look at our text for today, let me give you a brief introduction to this book. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Do you know? Well, nobody knows. The answer is not stated in this letter. There has been strong support for Paul over the centuries because 
much of the content in this book is something that Paul would have known very well. He was a scholarly Jew. He was a former Pharisee. And at the end of the letter, Timothy is mentioned, which is one of Paul's chief protégés. However, Paul identifies himself in all the other letters that he wrote, but not in this one. And in addition to this, the Greek in Hebrews is of a high literary style. And that's in contrast to Paul's more common Greek in the other epistles. Well, who are the candidates for authorship? Well, Luke has been mentioned, Silas, Barnabas, Apollos, Martin Luther believe that Apollos was the one who wrote this book because he was known to be an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, but we just do not know. But if it wasn't Paul, then it was probably someone at least in his circle of close companions. Who was this book written to? Well, there are essentially two options. One, to the Jewish Christians in Rome, and the other to the Jewish Christians in Palestine. Now, in favor of Rome are the references in this letter to the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. That was not used in Palestine at this time. Also, earlier persecution in Palestine did involve the shedding of blood. But the writer states that their recipients hadn't yet experienced the shedding of blood in persecution. There was a large Jewish Christian church in Rome early on. They were persecuted by the Emperor Claudius in 49 AD, and then again in 64 AD by Nero. The former persecutions seemed to fit the description of persecution that they had already experienced in chapter 10 without any bloodshed. But the persecution that is anticipated fits the violence under Nero. And finally, there's a statement at the end of this book in chapter 13, verse 24, where a greeting is sent from those who have come from Italy, suggesting that the recipients lived in Italy. So if it was written to Christians in Rome, then it would have been written before 64 A.D., when Nero began to persecute the Christians. Well, what is the main theme of this book? Well, it's a letter of exhortation to believers not to fall back in their faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus is the true fulfillment of the Old Testament types and promises. He is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. The author sums up his plea in Hebrews 10:23 that says, "Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." So please follow with me as I read the first two verses of chapter 1, which will be our text for this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Thus far the reading 
of God's Word. We're going to see in this text that God spoke and He has given His supreme and final Word through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we ought to listen to Jesus Christ because He is also the supreme heir of all things. And He Himself is the co-creator with the Father. Now, these Jewish Christians were experiencing increasing persecution from their countrymen. And they were beginning to think, maybe we ought to go back to those Old Testament practices, those old forms, those uh, old ways of, of ceremonially practicing our religion. Because maybe in doing so, we might find more fulfillment. Maybe in doing so, we will find more peace. But the author begins by stressing to them that they must heed God's final word. And that leads us to our first point that we're going to see from our text, and that is the supremacy of Christ as the final word. The author first stresses that God reveals himself. He has revealed himself and he revealed himself in the Son. Now we know that God reveals himself through creation. That's called general revelation. But we can only know so much about God through general revelation. God has revealed to us, therefore, his person, his ways, and his will through special revelation. And that is through his word. And in the Old Testament, he spoke primarily through the prophets. Prophets like Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and others. These were men who were used by the Holy Spirit to speak the very words of God. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what we call inspiration. Timothy said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God. But you see, the author here says God's Word through the prophets in the Old Testament was not complete. It was progressive revelation. God was revealing more and more of Himself throughout the Old Testament. But it wasn't complete. It pointed to the one who was coming who would be the ultimate prophet. God says in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So all the prophets in the Old Testament were just types of the perfect prophet who was to come, Jesus Christ. And so, the inspired author of Hebrews here says, in these last days God has spoken to us by His Son. In other words, He didn't use imperfect men like He did in the Old Testament. He didn't use mere men. He sent His Son from heaven who became a man, and he is the perfect prophet who fully reveals the Father to us. 
In Colossians 1.15, Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. He is the, the exact imprint of his nature. Now, when we talk about the Son of God, we're not to think of the Son as inferior to the Father. The reference to Son means he's the second person of the Trinity. He is God. But he is the Son in that he is in a unique relationship with the Father. And he is the exact representation of him. Jesus' revelation of the Father is complete and trustworthy. There is an exact correspondence between what we see in Jesus and the true and the truth of God as our Father. He existed with the Father for eternity past. In other words, he's not created. He proceeds eternally from the Father. He's equal to him in power and glory. We know that he came for three primary reasons. Jesus came first to reveal to us the Father. In John chapter 14, verse 9, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. But we also know that he came to provide us with righteousness because we are unrighteous. He came to impute his perfect record of unrighteousness of righteousness to us. And thirdly, he came to atone for our sins, to have our sins laid upon him and to receive the judgment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven. But the author here is stressing God's highest revelation of himself is through his son. Now here we have a distinction between Christianity and all the other false religions and cults of the world. You see, the cults believe, many of them, that Jesus was a good teacher, that he was a prophet, but they believe that there is some higher revelation following Jesus that was necessary, like Joseph Smith with respect to Mormonism. He was to bring further revelation. In the religion of Islam, greater revelation came through Muhammad. They believed that Jesus was a great prophet, but Muhammad was the greatest prophet. But this text tells us that there is no one greater. He is the culmination of God's revelation. Once for all, at the end of the ages, he has spoken in his Son. The end of the ages refers to the words of the prophets being fulfilled. It refers to the beginning of the messianic age. And so, the point that the author is making is that although the Old Testament is inspired, it's inspired by God, it's the inspired word of God, the revelation that we have in Christ is his ultimate, complete revelation. And it takes precedence over it in the sense that he came to interpret the Old Testament for us. We are not to go hunting, in other words, anymore for what we for what we already have in Christ, in the Scriptures. God in the flesh was the height of His communication to us. John said in chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So the inspired author here has lifted up the supremacy of the Son and His words to us. Now he begins to show us God, the, Jesus' essential nature in 
a series of seven propositions. Seven stands for perfection, stands for completion in the Bible. And so the author is displaying for us the sun like a glistening diamond, and he's giving us seven facets of that diamond, seven facets of his supremacy. And we're going to be dealing with the first two today in verse 2, and then next week, the rest, five of them in verse 3. Now, that author naturally moves from Jesus being the son to how he is the heir of God. In other words, in biblical times, the sons were naturally heirs of their father's wealth. And so here we see from our text the supremacy of Christ as the inheritor, as the inheritor. We read at the beginning of the second half of verse 2, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, Jesus was the heir of all things before he came to this world. But when he descended into this world, he took on a human nature without sin. He took on human flesh. And so when he ascended back into heaven after his resurrection... He regained his rightful place as heir, as God-man, the infinite God-man. And here, the author of Hebrews is consciously identifying Jesus with the anointed one of Psalm 2. In verse 5, the author quotes Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is about the Son and the authority that the Father gives the Son. It says in verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And then later on, it talks about how all of the universe is His, and the world to come. In other words, Jesus inherits everything. And we are His inheritance if we are believers. The Father has given His people to Jesus and we are His inheritance. And so, when Jesus ascended, He was enthroned to the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, at present, we do not see everything in subject to Him, but by faith we know that even now He is crowned with glory and honor. And someday, every eye will see, every tongue confess, every knee will bow, to Him as Lord. So the Scriptures are clear here that everything in the universe is for Jesus, to Jesus, and in Him as heir of a new creation. Now as heir, He's been given authority. When Jesus gave the great commission to His disciples, He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. And it's His authority over all things that gives believers great confidence. He's in control, and everywhere is His dominion. But the great blessing in this for believers is that Jesus has made us co-heirs with Him. Paul says in Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Paul, in his prayer for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, 18, says he prays that they might have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which he has called them, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance 
in the saints. You see, all believers, male and female, have been given the status of sons, co-heirs with Jesus. Or using another biblical analogy, Jesus is our bridegroom and we are his bride. And we inherit everything through his marriage to us. That's our destiny. We are co-heirs with Christ. When I was in college, I was pretty poor most of the time, and the first year I didn't have a car, and our campus was pretty far away from any of the stores or restaurants nearby, and so we were really dependent on someone having a car. Well, there was an upperclassman who was a believer, and I was in his discipleship group, his Bible study. And his father happened to be the founder and president of a huge carpet mill in Dalton, Georgia. He was very wealthy. And this friend, my Bible study leader, was very generous. He'd take us out to lunch or dinner a number of times, and he had a brand new 1975 Chevrolet Monte Carlo. And it was a beautiful car. It was a really sporty car. And he said that I could have use of it anytime I wanted to. And he showed me where the keys were in his room. And I would use it to go to the store or go and do my laundry. And in a small sense, I felt like I was his co-heir. Co-heir to his father's fortune because I was enjoying some of that fortune. But think of it. Think of what we have in Christ. Whatever we could have in this life, will pale in comparison to what we will have in heaven with Christ someday. We will enjoy all the inheritance that is His for eternity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.21, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. The world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You know, I am enamored with the new James Webb Space Telescope. Have you seen any of the pictures that have come from that telescope recently? They are amazingly sharp pictures of planets, stars, and galaxies. It's two to three times sharper than the Hubble Telescope, but it's a hundred times more powerful in magnification. Recently, it found the most distant star ever seen at 28 billion light years away called Arendelle. You know, it's estimated that the universe contains two trillion galaxies. Each galaxy contains around 100,000 million stars. It is amazing the creation that surrounds us. And yet it was all created by God from His Word. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. Psalm 147, 4 says, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. And so at the end of verse 2, we see another facet of the supremacy of Christ. We see the supremacy of Christ as the creator. Point number three. The author states here, 
through whom also he created the world. In other words, the pre-existent Son of God, in other words, before he took on human flesh, he was with God the Father for eternity past. And it was through him that the Father created the world, created the universe, the cosmos. That word world means cosmos or all the planets, all the stars. But it has an even more comprehensive meaning. It also means ages. In other words, he created the universe of space and time. It involves all the events and periods of time that have happened since the creation. All of history. Jesus created all of it. And this idea of Jesus as creator is supported by John. In John chapter 1, verse 3, he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then Paul says in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. What a clear testimony of the deity of Christ. And usually, heirs receive what they did not earn or did not create. But here, Jesus is the creator of everything that he inherits. And of course, we're part of his inheritance through redemption. And in the next section, two weeks from now, the author is going to tell us why this matters, why it matters that he is the creator of everything. Well, because he is the creator of everything, he is superior to everything in creation, like the angels. But we'll get, get to that later. Okay, what do we take away from the truths of this text that should make a difference in the way that we live and the way that we think every day? Well, let me give you three application points from this text. First, how do we respond to the supremacy of Jesus being the final word of God? Here we're confronted with the fact that God has spoken to us. He spoke to us in the Old Testament through his prophets, but then he finally and fully spoke to us through his Son, Jesus Christ, who came from the Father. We have this special revelation, the Bible. God spoke to us. His words are printed in our Bibles. What a privilege we have. What a privilege to have God's special revelation of himself. And ultimately and finally, through his son. Remember our scripture reading earlier in the service. Matthew 17, the transfiguration of Jesus. He's up on the mountain with his disciples, John and James and Peter. And his face begins to shine like the sun and his clothes like bright light. And with him are Elijah and Moses, the prophets of the Old Testament. And they're talking with him. And then suddenly... There's a cloud that envelops all of them. And the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And so the first application is a question. What or who 
are you listening to? He is the great final prophet. He is the culmination of God's revelation. He interprets the Old Testament for us. We have the Bible, God's Word. What we have is so incredibly precious. The prophets longed to know what we know now in Christ. And so, are we listening to Him? Do we treat His revelation as supremely authoritative in our lives? You know, I read about a poll that was done recently by George Barna, and it showed that among practicing Christians, that only 59% say they believe in moral absolutes. So in other words, 40% of those who are practicing Christians don't believe in moral absolutes. Well, what do we have in the Bible? We have absolutes about who God is, who man is, how God has provided salvation, how God expects us to live. These are all absolutes. One commentator wrote, there is nothing so important for Christians to recover today as the awe and respect that Scripture deserves as God's own revelation to us. So again, I ask you, who has your ear? Is it God and His Word? Or is it someone else? How should the authority of God's Word be reflected in your life? Well, let me suggest some things. You should read it daily. You should meditate on it daily. You should pray through it daily. You should study it. You should want to hear it preached and taught. You should strive to live it each day. It should determine your values, your morals, your priorities, your goals, and what you should be thinking about. Well, now consider the second point of our text. How do we respond to the supremacy of Christ being the inheritor of all things? One of the most important questions that we should be asking ourselves is, are you a co-heir with Christ? You see, if the Son is an heir of everything, if we are going to partake of anything, we must be in relationship with Him. But you see, there's a problem. The Bible says that originally man was created to inherit the earth. We were created to enjoy the Garden of Eden. We were created to enjoy God's unhindered fellowship. But it was all conditioned on Adam's obedience. But the first man, Adam, and his wife, Eve, rebelled against God. They disobeyed God, and therefore they were banished from paradise. They were banished from unhindered fellowship with God, and death arrived into the world because the wages of sin is death. So since then, people have been born with a sinful nature. And we are naturally separated from God apart from His grace. Because of our sin, we cannot fulfill God's commandments. But God still demands perfection. He still demands perfect righteousness. But we fall woefully short. Furthermore, God is a perfect judge. He must punish all sin in hell. 
and we amass this great debt every day. We sin, we violate his commandments, and apart from God's grace, we're going to have to pay that debt, and we cannot atone for our own sin. And so this is the predicament that mankind finds itself in, and yet the great news of the gospel is that God in his love before the beginning of time planned that he would provide a way for us to be saved, a way for Eden to be restored, a way for us to inherit heaven. How did he do this? Through the work and person of Jesus Christ. He sent his son to this world to earn righteousness for us so that his perfect record of righteousness would be credited to our account and God would see us as perfectly righteous. But he also came in order to take the debt of our sin upon himself as the innocent lamb of God. He went in our place to the cross to atone for our sins. And all of God's judgment for our sins was laid upon him. He had to experience that punishment and that shame because of our guilt. He bled and he died. And yet on the third day, he rose from the dead, showing himself to be God the Son, the Messiah, showing himself to be one who has earned righteousness and atoned for our sins, and he had victory over sin and death for us. And so now all those who by God's grace are given a new nature and therefore believe in Jesus and turn from their rebellion and sin and trust in who he is and what he did for their salvation, they are declared righteous forever before God. They are forgiven for all of their sins and they're given adoption as sons and daughters of God fellowship with God forever, the promise of eternal life with him in heaven, and an inheritance, being co-heirs with Christ. You see, there are only two kinds of people in this world, those who will inherit heaven with Christ as co-heirs with him, or those who will inherit hell forever. Which one are you? Make sure you will inherit heaven as co-heirs with Christ by surrendering your life to Christ, turning from your sin, trusting in Him alone for your salvation. And think of it. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are His inheritance. He wanted you to be His inheritance. He valued you so much that He humbled Himself to become a man and to be sacrificed for your sins. That's how valued you are as Christ's inheritance. And if you're a believer and you have this inheritance with Christ, you should not be anxious or worried about getting everything that you can in this life. People are so desperate. The older they get, they want to fulfill that bucket list. You see, you don't have to fill a bucket list. You don't have to live with regrets of things that you don't have or experiences that you did not have. Knowing Jesus in this life is enough. His grace is sufficient. He can fulfill you in this life, but just think about what you will enjoy in heaven when you die. You will have a resurrected perfect body that will live forever on a new earth. You will inherit everything that is Christ's. 
And you will have that for eternity. Well, finally, how do we respond to the supremacy of Christ as the creator? Jesus is God. God the Son. The co-creator with the Father. He made everything. He made you. He made all things. And we also learn that we will learn in our text next week that he sustains everything. But remember, he created the ages, meaning he's in control of time and space and history. In other words, he's all-powerful and all-sovereign over everything that happens in the world, everything that happens in your life. And so I ask you the third question, where is your worship and trust directed? See, the author wants to increase our esteem for Jesus. We ought to respond to this knowledge with awe and worship. He alone is worthy of our adoration and praise. And yet, what are we guilty of? There are many times when we are tempted to be in awe and to worship something in creation rather than the Creator. This is what Satan wants. He wants us to doubt God's Word. He wants us to look to something or someone other than Christ for our satisfaction and joy. And usually a telltale sign when you're doing this in your heart is when you get angry or when you get sad or when you're anxious or when you're dissatisfied or when you're unfulfilled. You see, it's those times you're looking to something other than Christ for your happiness. We need to repent of that idol worship and look only to Christ. He is the solution to your dissatisfaction. You see, if you are not feeling fulfilled or satisfied, it's not because you have tried Jesus and he wasn't sufficient. No, he's your creator. He's your God. He created you for him. He is fullness of joy. We can come to know Jesus better, but we can never find anything better than knowing him. Surely, a Christ whose hands shaped the universe, summoned the galaxies of stars into being, created and orchestrated all the history, he can hold, surely, you in his hands. He can sustain you during times of persecution and testing. He can guide your steps through times of adversity. Certainly, if he can control the destiny of the universe, he controls your destiny. He provides for all of our needs. This is what Jesus is saying to us in this text today. Since he is the creator, he is the orchestrator of history, he can hold and protect all of us and provide for us whatever difficulty we find ourselves in. He can carry us through times of testing and trials. Don't worry. Cast your burdens upon him, for he cares for you. He controls your destiny. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are the final word. You are the word. You are the manifestation of the Father. You interpret the Old Testament for us. 
Just as you interpreted it for those men on the road to Emmaus when you showed them how the prophets and all the wisdom literature pointed to you. Oh Lord, help us to listen to you for you speak to us through your word. Help us to count that as the most precious thing in our lives and to follow it, to heed it. Oh Lord, thank you for being the great inheritor of all things and that you have made us co-heirs with you. Oh Lord, help us to look forward to all that we have in you and to rejoice in those things and to find our fullness in you, not to expect it from this world or the things of this world. And Lord, thank you for being our creator. You made us, you know what we need. You are in control of all of history, space and time. You're in control of all the events of our lives. Lord, comfort us with that fact that you do only that which is for our good and for your glory. And you can sustain us. You can carry our burdens. You can give us satisfaction and fulfillment in yourself. Forgive us, Lord, for how often we have turned away from you and tried to find all those things in this world. Lord, capture our hearts.